Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. A couple weeks ago, we released our Trust and Safety Tycoon game, uh, and if you have not played it yet, you can find it at trustandsafety.fun. Uh, a few days later, after that, we had a podcast about the game with my fellow game designers, Randy Lubin and Lee Beaton. Uh, and at that time, and also obviously when we launched the game, we talked about how the game was created in association with the Atlantic Council's task force on a trustworthy future web. So today on the podcast, we wanted to talk to some of the folks from uh, the Atlantic Council about not just the game, but how trust and safety is so vital uh, these days uh, in particular, though it's it's always vital. Uh, obviously, over the last few weeks, there's been a ton of attention on everything that is going on with Israel and Palestine, and that has obviously been something of a a uh, complex uh, situation on the ground, but is also flowing over into other areas, especially online. Uh, there have been efforts from across the political spectrum to push particular messages and narratives, some of which are accurate, some less so, uh, and certainly plenty of myths and disinformation flowing as well. And so I can think of uh, no better guests than the two that we have today from the Atlantic Council to discuss the role of trust and safety in these confusing moments uh, than who we have. We have uh, Rose Jackson and Andy Carvin. Uh, Rose is the director of the Democracy and Tech Initiative at the Atlantic Council's DFR Lab. She has a long history as an entrepreneur and a diplomat working on a variety of issues around tech and human rights around the globe. Uh, Andy has been helping to debunk false information online during crises almost as long as I've been writing Tech Dirt. Uh, he's worked for a number of different news organizations in that role and is currently a senior fellow and managing editor at the DFR Lab where he's been studying some of the information flows regarding the situation in Israel and Palestine, as well as elsewhere as well. So Andy and Rose, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much Next for having us. So uh, I, I want to start out by noting this is obviously, uh, you know, everything that's happening in the world right now is very, very serious. And it's obviously an important and serious topic. Um, and we're talking about that, but we're also talking about a game, which feels a little discordant to some extent. Uh, <laughs> You know, we, we like to, in, in developing our games, we refer to them as serious games, uh, but still sometimes feels a little bit, you know, off-putting. But but I did want to uh, start by asking Rose for you to talk about, you know, why you think, um, you know, recognizing that, that, that a game like this is actually still something that's really useful at a time like this. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And I appreciate the, the call out. Certainly none of us are um, making light of, of the really horrible and serious things going on at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, when we, when we built the task force, part of the intention around it was to put language around what had formed, uh, frankly, initially as a, a somewhat amorphous group of people in a bunch of different companies and in civil society and governments, just trying to figure out what to do about this digital space where more and more people were showing up and are interacting with each other. 
and inevitably doing the things that they do offline, which includes all sorts of good things and all sorts of terrible things. Um, and I, I think it's it's really interesting when you approach it from from that standpoint. You know, we have all these expectations on companies because they are extremely well funded. They are the ones that have an immense amount of control over what happens in those digital spaces. Uh, but I think sometimes we lose sight of how complicated and difficult it is to even have a sense of what right is. Uh, and so what I loved about your game in the first place was that it takes people through some of those difficult decisions uh, that you're weighing not just the question of many, many, many different people wanting many, many different things from you at the same time. Uh, you're weighing people who are actively trying to game your system to find ways to make it do things it wasn't supposed to do. You're dealing with executives that have their own demands and incentives that you have to engage with to be successful within a company. You're dealing with regulators. You're dealing with so many different pieces of information and incentives at the same time uh, that I, I think in moments of crisis where people are perhaps most emotionally connected to what they're watching happening in a digital space that they have a lot of thoughts about every other part of the year, but just aren't tuned into, reminding people uh, of what is within the bounds of possible uh, and what mm -hmm. you actually should be thinking about and asking for and focused on is extremely valuable. So I, I don't see it as, you know, this game is making light of a difficult situation. I, I kind of wish every person right now struggling to make sense of what they're seeing took a few minutes and, <laughs> and played around with it because I think we might have a better conversation coming out of it. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, to some extent, right, that is the, the intent of what we were trying to do with it in sort of, you know, there is this, this feeling that, that comes across sometimes, you know, especially for people who don't have experience, you know, managing a site like, you know, any, any of the, the sites, whether big or small, that, um, you know, the reason they're messing up is because they're bad or malicious <laughs> or incompetent or some combination of, of all those things. Um, you know, and, and that may be true in some cases, right? There are certainly, <laughs> I think, websites that are potentially run by incompetent people. But like the reality is that, you know, these things are way more challenging and there are way more variables at play and there are way, way more forces pushing on you and pulling on you in, in all different directions that I think for people to have a more informed notion of, of how these things should be, you know, should be handled. It helps to actually, you know, have a better view of all of those things. And so, um, Andy, I wanted to ask you because I mean, you obviously have spent, you know, you know, years looking at, at disinformation and the ways in which these things happen, um, you know, from, from, and sort of, you know, just the way information flows. Um, are you finding that with the, the current crisis and the current things that are happening that, um, the companies are as, uh, you know, as prepared as they should be to handle what's happening. Well, given how hard it is for companies to make these decisions in the best of times, yeah. uh, it's not terribly surprising we're seeing so much outrage uh, among the general public about what they're seeing or not seeing, depending on their perspective. Um, ever since the very first videos started coming out showing um, the Hamas terrorist attack and 
ever since with all the footage that people have seen uh, of Israel's uh, response in Gaza, uh, with the airstrikes. Uh, it's, it's an environment that's already ripe for anger and accusations and an unwillingness to listen to the other side. So you add on top of that uh, information coming at the speed of breaking news, systems on platforms that uh, their algorithms aren't necessarily highlighting the best stuff at any given moment of time, at any time. And then mix in with that some of the bloodiest, scariest graphic footage I've ever seen shared online. And we're in this perfect storm where people are outraged about the conflict, but they're outraged about what they're seeing online and what they're not seeing online. And it's, I'm not sure how we get out of this cycle because there isn't an easy solution for any of this. Right. I mean, yes, it's, it, it, I mean, that's what, one of the things, I mean, that's distressing in some ways, but, but it's sort of interesting is right. I mean, this is a conflict that has obviously gone on for decades. Um, yep. and there was no easy answer to the conflict itself underlying it. Right. That, that's, it should be obvious to pretty much everyone. I don't think we're going to be solving that here. <laughs> right, right. Middle East peace. No, no. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, we can hash it out between the three of us. Uh, <laughs> but but then you take you you add into that the the sort of the information warfare aspect of it, right? And and whether it is people who are deliberately trying to misrepresent things, deliberately trying to mislead people, or just people who are. I mean, there, there are a bunch of different motivations at work here, which is which is part of the complexity, right? I mean, you have there are the, the sort of clout farmer people who just want attention and are willing to pass along anything, potentially make up stuff in some cases, who knows? Um, and then you have the people who are well-meaning, but you have people who are coming at it from a certain perspective, and you have a lot of confirmation bias and and other things happening. And so, you know, you mix all that together, um, and and I'm kind of curious, like. Well, let me. Uh, I'm I'm going to rephrase this a little bit. Like, so so one one of the things that we we've talked about for a long time is that so many of the like trust and safety problems um, and challenges that come up are um, a significant number of them are actually reflections of of complexity that are happening in the real world, where you're just seeing them play out in social media and the the. The yeah. feeling is often, uh, you know, people want to blame social media for it when it's really just kind of like shining a light on it. How much of what is happening right now do we think is is that like shining a light on the complexity of this situation, which is obviously deeply complex and and there is no easy solution? And how much of it is, you know, technology and the internet making these things worse? I can take a crack um, and then pass. Oh, sorry. I was going to say pass no, the end so, on No, that. so go right ahead. I'll, uh, you get started here. I got thoughts on later. the specifics. Well, I, I just wanted to add like something that Andy had said up front into your first question, right? About like, are yeah. these companies prepared? I think that it is important to acknowledge that this moment, this kind of really significant challenge for that system and space comes at a pretty bad time. We just went yeah. through a wave of layoffs in all of these companies. Trust and safety teams were hit pretty hard. Uh, they're tightening their budgets. And so the sorts of things they would spend on in crises to level up 
their language abilities, what they're spending on vendors, all of these other things that allow companies to do a, a slightly better job at this. Those teams are not the teams right now getting all of the attention and support. And they're operating in a in a increasingly complicated environment because the Digital Services and Digital Markets Act is coming into force mm-hmm. and companies are trying to figure out what that's going to mean for them. And so there's this weird moment where like we want very badly that this moment creates opportunity for those teams to actually get resources and for executives to understand how essential they are. Uh, but we haven't gotten there yet. And so we're, you know, understaffed. There aren't really clear rules. You now have regulators stepping in in confusing ways that might actually hurt the incentives of some of the yep. folks inside those companies. And so I just want to call that out because I don't think this is just a steady state moment. Um, the one thing I would see on top of that before passing to Andy, who can certainly talk more about um, uh, kind of more of the specifics of what we're seeing. Um, I, I also am struck that I think we are in a, in a political moment where the hardest things are made harder by us not learning the lessons we previously learned. So there's no way to say that, you know, the complexity of the situation isn't inherently tied to the complexity of Middle East politics and dynamics, of course. But I'm, I'm struck that we're watching, for instance, like the Israeli government is sharing content on a regular basis that if I was giving a basic training to anybody, it would say, don't ever, 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 ever share content that graphic without warning. And this is not the kind of thing that we want out there. Uh, we have pressed and reporting on that. And I remember in the first few days of the conflict, you had mainstream outlets publishing and print and, and uh, posting horrifically graphic videos mm-hmm. and images as if this is new to us. This is not new to us. That is not new. And I think you can go down the line on almost every lesson when we did the task force. Part of the whole point of it was, can we consolidate lessons of 10 to 20 years of experience in the online space? And some of the stuff we don't need to relearn. I'd just say like from the vantage point that I'm in, it's frankly a little frustrating to see us unnecessarily having the same process of relearning on top of a tinderbox of a nightmare geopolitical situation and humanitarian disaster. Yeah, and and, and um, hold, hold, sorry, I, I don't mean to, Andy. I'll go to you in a second. I just want to 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 reinforce that because I think it's, um, you know, part part of the whole role of trust and safety itself as a concept was really an attempt to avoid that because every company, you know, if you go back just like six or seven years, every company was basically inventing that on its own. And like the, the, even the phrase trust and safety sort of, you know, coalescing around that as a concept is really only, you know, five, six, seven years old for most companies. And like, you know, that's why I was excited about the task force in the first place and being yeah. a part of it was this idea of like actually turning it into a, a set of understanding and, and we're starting to see best practices show up. And then something like this comes along and suddenly we're like, <laughs> hey, remember all that stuff we were working yeah. on? Like, what, Never what happened mind. to it? <laughs> so, sorry, Andy, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's such a lose-lose situation yeah. for for everyone involved, but uh, l- looking, for example, at Instagram mm-hmm. over the last week, um, uh, the Intercept did some reporting not too long ago about uh, uh, Palestinians identifying examples of content that appeared to have been censored or removed or blocked by uh, uh, by Instagram, not allowing Palestinians to be able to 
tell their experiences in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, uh, my staff has, have had several instances in which they've gone on Instagram, not even for doing their work, but just to check Instagram and having uh, Instagram reels automatically start playing footage of horrifying, horrifying events um, that even in the best of times, our team is struggled to be prepared for, and it's part of their job. So right. what do you do when the average person is is flipping through uh, Instagram reels or on TikTok and something pops up that should be documented somewhere clearly because uh, we're talking about potential war crimes uh, or evidence, mm-hmm. depending on your point of view. And yet it can also be weaponized and it can also be gamed. And uh, it seems like all of that's happening at once. And uh, trust and safety teams are left somewhere in the middle trying to figure out how do you call balls and strikes when it's not a situation where there's going to be winners and losers. Yeah. Yeah. Just losers. (laughs) (laughs) It's a game I don't want to play. I like your game, Mike, because there is a potential path to victory, maybe, maybe some winning. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is interesting. Obviously, you know, we created the game before all this, you know, happened. Um, but we do have an example of, you know, a particular piece of horrific content where there are questions where, you know, in within the game, you have to figure out whether or not you allow that content online and uh, whether or not you take into account who is posting it and for what reason. So in, in the, in the game version, there is, there is content that is posted both by a terrorist organization uh, and by a human rights organization. And with the human rights organization, they're posting it to document war crimes and make the world aware of it. When it's posted mm-hmm. by the terrorist group, it's being used as a recruitment tool. And you have to decide, like, does context matter? And if so, how do you handle that? You know, do you need a team to, like, go in and figure out, like, who's actually posting this and what for? Um, yeah. And so... It, it turns out that's relevant. <laughs> you know, that's, that is the, the kinds of things that these companies have to do often with, with, you know, as Rose noted, you know, smaller teams, smaller budgets, um, and, and less time to deal with this stuff, especially at the speed with which, um, things, things are progressing. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, like, so we, you know, we put that in the game in part because that was one of the earliest examples I remember of this kind of conflict showing up. And this goes back to like 2008, uh, where um, there were, you know, Senator Lieberman, uh, you know, going back, had had sent this angry letter to YouTube saying like, you're, there are te- there's terrorist content on your site and it needs to be taken down. Um, and so YouTube first pushed back a little bit and then eventually did. And one of the first accounts they took down was like a Syrian human rights group that was trying to document, uh, you know, war crimes Mm -hmm. that were going on and call attention, you know, to the world. They were saying like, these things aren't getting enough attention and then they're getting posted and then they they get taken down as terrorist content. And it's like, how do you, how do you draw the line on that? And, and that's, you know, that, that's the (laughs) challenge that, that, you know, a lot more people are now facing. I vividly remember that happening because back in 2011, 2012, during the Arab Spring, you had human rights groups in Syria and elsewhere that were documenting literally thousands of clips uh, that 
no one would normally want to spend their time watching, but the, the approach was as evidence. They, they yes. wanted to have an archive. Uh, and so intent suddenly becomes so much more important because it's one thing if you see ISIS uploading footage uh, of a beheading, and it's another thing if a human rights group documenting uh, murders of its of its uh, staff being captured by terrorist groups. One is important. It's still an important record to preserve, but what happens when it gets shared by a certain group in a certain way? I recall when all of that went down, hearing from the Syrian human rights group saying, they messaged me and said, we've just lost like 15,000 videos. Do you know anyone at YouTube? Right. And yeah. that, that was the question. Do you know anyone at YouTube? They didn't even know to, where to begin to have the yeah. conversation and how to get it restored. And so uh, these difficulties about what to keep, what not to keep, how do you make those decisions, go back for almost as far back as, as platforms have been hosting content. But it doesn't make the decisions any easier as the body of evidence across these conflicts just keeps piling up. And combatants and their supporters find creative ways of utilizing mm-hmm. that content to either generate sympathy or to incite hate. Yeah, it's it's funny when I remember that uh, the the time in Syria certainly and being at the State Department often as the part of the State Department that activists would ask like, "Hey, can you call someone at Facebook or can you call someone mm-hmm. at YouTube?" And having to actually be the people <laughs> calling and saying, "Hey, this might be evidence." Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm struck that like that example is a great one of where there was all of this progress because of the work of activists in the context of Syria in particular, yeah. uh, that there was a precedent for the idea that you needed to have legal standards for how would you use digital content and legal proceedings or for accountability after the fact, how do you actually document and collect it then in a way that could be used for those purposes. And certainly that meant that when Russia invaded Ukraine, you had, people capable of doing that and you had platforms a little bit more accustomed to it, but we're still in the middle of a conversation with platforms on what are they required to keep? And one of the things in the DSA and DMA, right, is this like conflicting interest between I want content taken down that is harmful, but you can't get rid of it because I need it for record. Um, And certainly even, you know, lots of people, when we talk about these sorts of contexts, love to bring up the, the Myanmar example on Facebook and I'd note that they did actually end up handing over significant information and data that is being used in accountability processes. Um, so this isn't hypothetical. Uh, but I think, again, we get stuck often on tech where we think of tech as the primary question rather than tech as an aspect of a longstanding societal question. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, I have a background in, in human rights work and human rights documentation. And even before you had the Internet. Uh, I think the question of multiple truths is something that we're not comfortable or familiar with. And certainly in a world where we're all really freaked out about disinformation, undermining the ability of experts uh, and institutions to play their role. But I don't think we do ourselves any favor when we conflate fact and the idea that there are discernible facts with truth. Because just to take the examples we just used, right? Now, If you are posting a picture of a beheading for the purpose of sensationalizing, radicalizing, mobilizing, terrorizing, okay, that's one truth. People experience that. If you are posting that video or trying to document that video 
for the purpose of going after the terrorists down the line to hold them to account within a rule of law, that is also a truth. Those two things matter. Who shot a bullet in a war zone? If a civilian is hit, the civilian's family does not care who shot that bullet. Their Mm -hmm. family member is dead. If you are someone trying to, within a military, do an investigation and determine whether that was within the laws of war or not, it does matter. And so it's, it's part of this is like, how do we return ourselves to the institutions that are able to help us parse these things, right? Like, I don't want every random person on the internet suddenly having to become an expert on what genocide is <laughs> or the difference between different crimes against humanity. And like, right. I, this is, we used to joke in this, not joke, that's terrible. We used to say in the state department, there's no hierarchy of crimes against humanity or war crimes. There's no hierarchy. These are all like, these are legal standards right. and terrible things. Um, and so to the same degree that Andy is referring to not wanting the average person getting exposed to the most horrific content just by scrolling through their feed, I also don't want people walking into these conversations without any guideposts. And so some of this is a responsibility of traditional media and the press to contextualize and help people understand things. Some of it is a responsibility of people like us doing our jobs and helping to communicate what is. Uh, But that gets harder and harder in an environment where the online space is certainly bending towards everybody's worst incentives and not creating space for that uh, thoughtfulness. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, there, there are a bunch of different interesting elements here that are worth exploring. You, you've brought up the, you know, the DSA and the DMA a few times. Um, and I think that has been interesting in its own way. And I know you've, you've written about this as well. You know, um, there was just this situation recently where, you know, and, and we, people who've listened to this podcast, but now know that we've, we've had some long conversations about the DSA in particular and kind of, some of the the confusion about uh, how is it how does it actually work and how nobody actually seems to know um, <laughs> and so now we're we're seeing you know the you know the digital enforcer I I, I believe that he he has that he puts that title on it him, uh, himself on his social media feed theory theory Breton I don't, I don't even know Terry Breton Terry Breton uh, and you know he sent these letters to most of the different platforms and basically said, you know, there is, uh, you know, uh, illegal content and disinformation and that you, you know, under the DSA, you were required to deal with that though. He, he does uh, a nice job of conflating the two where there are different requirements, <laughs> depending on if it's illegal content versus disinformation. And he sort of lumps them together. Um, and, you know, to me, I, I, I'd be interested to hear from both of you. I don't think that's particularly helpful. I think that that giving that sort of broad description of like you need to deal with both illegal content and disinformation within the same bucket and without distinguishing what is actually what and what he's actually concerned about, I think is sort of a recipe for for uh, really bad things to happen in terms of how the companies respond to it. Um, and we have, I will note again, since you know, sensibly, this podcast is also about the game. We do have a situation in the game where <laughs> you have to deal with the EU officials and the DSA in particular. Uh, but, anyways, so I'm I'm curious what what you think yeah. of you know how the the DSA in particular and how um, you know how that is playing out in this in this scenario. Yeah, I mean, we just published a piece on this, so certainly encourage people to to read it where we parsed 
the letters that were sent out and then subsequent press announcements informing us that there were official inquiries then provided to some of those companies. Um, And I I think part of it, it's interesting. I've certainly had conversations with folks in the EU that are working really, really hard right now in the middle of finalizing the implementation guidance on the DSA. So I think it was like days before this conflict started that they, or maybe into the days into the conflict that they released the final like delegated act that tells you how the audits will work. Like we're, we're still in train. Um, And I I call that out because, you know, Andy can certainly speak to the the ramifications of whether the EU gets right requirements for what information companies have to provide and to whom, how researchers (laughs) will or will not have access to information that allows us to help make sense of this crazy space that people are walking into is really important. The promise of that is huge so I think a lot of civil society's reaction and frustration is because it's taking attention away from that. And they're worried that it will undermine the ability of the EU to, to at the last mile, really bring home and, and you know, credit to Breton as well on this, right? Like really bring home what should be a huge legacy moment. Um, with that said, I think you can't have this conversation absent understanding the history of governments mm-hmm. asking for things from companies. And we always like to think about this as if it's like, oh, it's just the gentle EU or it's the United States (laughs) and they're just going after terrorists. But like, you know, we at the DFR lab have had foreign governments ask tech companies for information on our staff's personal location because they don't like something they wrote. Yes. Activists around the world face those sorts of requests into formal law enforcement and companies every single day. And the vast Mm -hmm. majority of civil society has spent their time in the tech space trying to bolster companies' backbone and saying no. Yep. So it's it's not that straightforward. And I don't think, you know, it, to some degree, you've got folks in the EU that are not from the foreign policy and human rights side. DG Connect are the regulators on digital. You people yep. focus on digital markets and digital services, telcos, et cetera. And so the folks that are accustomed to what I just described are, are a part. The folks that are writing these rules right now, they're aware of that. They're talking to civil society. They're trying to balance these equities. But that's where I think the, the concerns sit. In our piece, the one thing I would highlight is the letters are not a legal standard. They don't, they're not grounded in anything. That was a political statement from Commissioner Berton, which he, has, he absolutely has a right to do. I personally think that they were misguided. Um, it seems like they were notifying companies or warning that like there's probably going to be an official inquiry coming. And then there were official inquiries. Now, right. it would be very helpful if the EU would communicate what we should be looking for and what a normal process would be uh, to have one consolidated place for information where we can track what has and hasn't been set and understanding of what we're going to have access to. Because right now, I, I don't know whether we will get access to the official inquiry sent to the companies um, or what form of them. Um, and all of that is not to say like this, this should not be taken as a, so the DSA is bad <laughs> right, right, <laughs> or that right. like this whole experiment is done. Um, yeah. I think it's a learning moment. Uh, and I think that I, my interest, I will say is in ensuring the people that are doing really good, hard work on a really impossible timeline are able to advance that work, uh, at the same time as making sure we're not setting really dangerous precedents unintentionally. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that is really important. And it's, you know, it's one of these interesting things that, that I've struggled with a little bit on the DSA and people have accused me of, of being unfairly mean to the DSA or, or to, <laughs> to EU officials on it. But like, it's in, in my view, it's, it's sort of like, I was trying to 
as much as I could, as like, you know, one random guy, you know, stress testing some of these things because so much of it was up in the air. I mean, the, the you know, having the law and then figuring out the, the, you know, implementation of it later strikes me as odd, but I know it happens, but like, you know, I, I had had, I had had this experience last year, last December, um, in San Francisco where I was talking to, you know, the EU opened up a new office in San Francisco, which is basically, you know, the, the new, new sheriff come to town effectively. (laughs) Uh, and, and so, you know, they invited me up to, to, to talk with the person who's here. Um, and I kept saying like, you know, do you worry that the DSA will be used as a way to like suppress protected speech? And he kept saying, no, 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 of course that can't happen. It has nothing to do with that, but you know, we need the companies to get rid of bad stuff. And I said, well, (laughs) you're, 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 you're trying to walk a line here that I don't, I don't know that that is, is that clear. Um, and at one point he said to me, he's like, you know, well, we're, we're not asking for any kind of censorship. We wouldn't, we would never do that. But, you know, if there is still bad content online, we'll know that we'll have to do more. And I was like, well, that feels like you're, you're not exactly doing it. And, and what upsets me to some extent now is that we're in this situation where there is a very serious crisis. And if there had been more thought put towards this stuff, and and if there had been like, well, how does this play out in reality, people would understand better what what the what the different rules are and how to act. And right now it feels like everybody's making it up as they go along. And for for all of the talk of how careful and thoughtful the approach was to create the DSA, and mm-hmm. you know, unlike the US at least, there was like there was a lot of work and they spoke to everybody and there was, you know, all different impressions were, were given and perspectives and, and, you know, the, all of these issues ha- came up somewhere in the process, which, you know, is unlike the way the U S seems to pass laws. We need, we need a game. We need a game yes. to, to mimic uh, regulatory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's next. Uh, but, but then to see it now in practice during an actual crisis, and it feels like all of the careful planning and thoughtfulness has just kind of been tossed out the window. At least that's that's what it feels like to me. Hopefully it doesn't turn out to, to be that that way in the end. Yeah. Um, so one other thing that I think is is worth discussing in, in terms of like how all of this is playing out, which is like the nature of um, of the different platforms. And and one of the things that that certainly comes up is like, you know, you see the discussions about misinformation and, you know, these crises occur and, and people often act as if like all of the platforms are the same and all of the, the issues that they face are exactly the same. And that's not true for a variety of reasons. One, the platforms just have different types of information, different types of content, video, pictures, text, um, and, and there are different challenges around each of them, but then also just the policies and the setup of them. So, and, and, and who's running things, right? So like, you know, it's one thing to talk about like Instagram and threads and what's happening there and Meta's process for handling things and then Twitter, right? And Twitter now has a very different process, especially with, with Elon Musk in control and sort of the way he runs things. And then there's like a whole separate discussion around Telegram, which has been really, really important in all, in all of this and yet seems to get no attention at all, I think, compared, compared to the others. So, so Andy, I, I, I wanted to know if you had a sense of like how to think about that and the different platforms, the different types of content on those different platforms. Telegram's been particularly fascinating because uh, 
combatants are using it very effectively to communicate their messaging. Uh, Hamas has multiple channels aligned with them uh, or run by them. Uh, allies such as Hezbollah are very active on the platform. Meanwhile, you've got the IDF running uh, its channel and there are other, uh, other channels affiliated with the Israeli government. And uh, even though Telegram has a reputation of being the Wild West because of the lack of content moderation, generally speaking, uh, at least it's predictable there because mm-hmm. if you... If you're interested in what's going on, you decide which channels you want to follow and you keep up with them at the rate you choose. And uh, so my Telegram feed is uh, a hot mess right now, given all the things that I'm following. <laughs> but again, it, it, that's that's on me because I decided to follow all these actors involved in the conflict and they're posting at extraordinary rates. Now, a lot of that same content quickly ends up on places like Twitter. There it takes on a completely new life of its own uh, because once it's there, people can take it and put it in any context they want. Uh, the way uh, the uh, the blue check mark system has been turned upside down on Twitter, uh, you're having these certain uh, certain individuals rising up to the top as new stars in the quote unquote OSINT space when what really seems to be happening is they're just sharing things as fast as they can without a, a, a clear chain of custody on the content or an explanation on, on why they're deciding to post this or that. And meanwhile, all these very experienced, well-intentioned researchers, human rights groups, and news organizations, they're trying to keep up on this exact same platform, and yet no one's engaging with their content because they don't have that vaunted blue check mark anymore. Hmm. And they're not part of the ecosystem that's now currently dominating the conversation on the platform. Yeah. I mean that, gosh, I mean, it's that's a whole, a whole different kind of challenge. This, this one is unfortunately not mapped as nicely in the game. I feel like almost everything we've talked about is, is shown in the game, but this is, this is, this, <laughs> yeah, is this one's a toughie. Yeah. Yeah, proving uh, that you think you have a handle on all of the things that could happen online, and people will find new ways. Yes, <laughs> to screw with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it it is kind of incredible how much, you know, how little things can can impact all of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and how people think that you know, oh, the, the you know, this will work, or, or like, you know, it it feels like, you know, Elon Musk's take on all of this is that, you know. The, the way to deal with the misinformation is just have like more people spewing other information, but, um, more, and, and more disinformation, more, more disinformation. It's, isn't uh, that the famous, the famous quote, uh, more, more speech. It's Elon Musk's version is just meet it with more disinformation. <laughs> right. Right. Flooding the zone, uh, <laughs> it just allows the most vocal or the ones most willing to pay $8 a month <laughs> uh, yeah. to, to dominate the conversation. You know, Mike, one thing that I think is worth, to, I, I'm always careful not to, you know, remove into the intellectual conversation as if it's apart from, you know, real humans yeah, on yeah. the other end of this experiencing real things. Um, but, you know, our team does have a, a piece that will be coming out hopefully soon comparing some of these dynamics on different platforms. But it is this really interesting moment to see how a policy difference may impact 
the results of what's happening on a platform versus the ability to or implementation decisions against the policy enforcement decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one thing uh, that someone on our team noticed early on was that TikTok had made a decision that they didn't want certain violent content. So they didn't want those videos that right. Instagram was feeding up uh, into people's feeds unaware. Um and of course, people find ways to get around that and use coded language and we'll talk about things the way they want to. Um, but, you know, just from a technical standard, it's a really interesting question of like, how do they do that? And how successful right. are they in doing that? And what is the outcome right. at the end result of that? But like all of these platforms on a technical level have to learn from each other and the interplay of a policy decision and an enforcement decision and a technical decision then meeting the political world um, to me is is a fascinating thing that we all should be paying close attention to. Um, I, I also am reminded, I don't know if you guys ever saw, uh, some years ago, back when people actually were on Facebook regularly, someone had mocked up, uh, a version as if world war one had taken place on Facebook. And it was like every country replying to each other in thread. <laughs> and like, what's wild to me is like, we're actually experiencing that. Yeah. Like, that's not a joke. We are yeah. like, that is a real thing that we have countries and governments and non-official actors and terrorist groups and regular people all posting their official statements into these yeah. social media spaces as co-equals with whoever decides they're operating in those spaces. And I don't think that we've sufficiently taken a step back and appreciated that that's a pretty crazy moment. And I don't yeah. know that we've been in a geopolitical moment like that before the most recent Russian invasion of Ukraine and certainly this conflict right now. Yeah. And then you add to that, you know, like steakums, right? I mean, it's like, (laughs) steakums. That's what we need. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it is a, a, yeah. I, I mean, there are going to be obviously books, you know, assuming that that humanity survives, <laughs> as grim as that seems, you know, uh, it is um, it, it is an incredible moment, and it is very very odd that I get you know discussions that used to happen through like diplomatic channels and you know in very official forums are now happening on just random internet platforms where anyone can join in, and that's kind of crazy you know mike i not to derail but yeah in the when the eu sent out their their letters when breton sent those letters to the platforms uh i was reminded very much of i I had a very strange experience when i was at the state department that i was actually uh declared persona non grata in bahrain uh with then assistant secretary tom milanowski there was a little bit of a diplomatic incident Hmm. um but we were declared png by tweet really we had this oh yeah oh yeah and we had this whole debate as to whether it counted. Was that an official <laughs> diplomatic communique? Because right. gen- genuinely, like, I'm pretty sure it was the first time ever that had happened. Yeah. It was from the, the foreign minister. Um, and we decided, no, that until you send through official diplomatic channels the notice that you want us out of your country, this, is, this doesn't count. And right. there were a number of other reasons for that. But the only way that we could respond, and, and this is you know middle of the night, pretty crazy context, uh, was to send a, a tweet. <laughs> and <laughs> right. so I, I remember the very surreal experience of like sitting at, at one of the embassy computers where we're like holed up in the U.S. embassy, typing out 140 characters <laughs> with like a, 
a DCM behind me, the assistant secretary and our Middle East staffer and the Paul chief all debating those 140 characters as to what we wanted to say in that moment, both to the minister and to the opposition we were there to talk to and to the world right. as representation of U.S. policy. It was wild. It was absolutely yeah. insane. And the, the minute that we sent that tweet, the AP and every wire service picked it up and started reporting on it as official U.S. policy. So right. I like this isn't new. I just don't think we ever really came to ground on understanding the ways well, in which I, it integrated. In a funny way, I think we sense that Bahrain of all countries during the Arab Spring <laughs> was going to be a template for something, but what it was hard to tell <laughs> because you had. But no, it, it, bear with me for a second here. So you yeah. had half a dozen or more countries across the Arab world uh, having revolutions, revolts, protests, etc. Uh, but one thing most of them had in common was relatively limited internet access. Whereas in Bahrain, broadband was ubiquitous and government officials were using it as at a higher rate, as higher rate as any yeah. dissidents were. And so you had these strange moments where dissidents would be going on hunger strikes and members of the royal family would then troll them with pictures of food <laughs> on Twitter. Oh, uh, and, God. Uh, and, at the time, it, it was an outlier, but it really did predict some of the things we're yeah. now seeing playing out in this conflict where the combatants are very technologically savvy, are, are very good at reaching their own audiences yeah. and getting under each other's skin uh, and using that as a tactic uh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, as part of hybrid warfare. And so um, it's the the internet's gotten stranger than any of us would have imagined and yet the the seeds have been growing for a very long time yeah it, it's it's it reminds me i i was part of a um i i can't talk about all the details but i was part of part of a dialogue uh as it was called uh a few months back um and and someone there was talking about um uh, two different times they were interrogated in a certain Middle Eastern country, which I will not name, uh, <laughs> a, approximately 10 years apart and was saying how the first time he was interrogated, you know, the, you know, the person who was doing the interrogation didn't really understand the Internet, didn't didn't know what was going on. Whereas the second time he was interrogated, he said he had like, uh, you know, framed uh you know certificates on the wall of different classes that this person had taken online you know from google and or like you know a certification from from different technical company like you know everybody is much more technically sophisticated now nowadays even people that you know uh, you know, we might consider bad actors or problematic in some ways or another and everyone is sort of figuring out how to use this stuff um and, you know, it goes back to, to something else, Rose, that you were saying earlier about, like, how different countries, you know, might reach out to these companies and, and seek information on on activists or whoever. Um, you know, that was actually part of the – one of the inspirations for the game was a conversation that we had with a trust and safety person who was saying, you know, the requests for information – from U.S. law enforcement look mm -hmm. identical to the request for information from Saudi mm -hmm. Arabian law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And it's just like... Because we taught them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we, we built the model and taught them how to do it. Exactly. And like, 
you know, and it's one thing, like some people say, well, that's easy. Just ignore the Saudi Arabian ones and, and obey the US ones. It's like, it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Like it, it does work not way. work that way. And so, no. you know, and that's, that's some of what we're, we're trying to get at in the game is like, we have this, you know, within the game, one of the things is that like, you get requests from law enforcement that are, you know, potentially reasonable, but potentially really, really not reasonable. And some of them come from, you know, countries that you might think of as good actors. And some of those are bad requests and some of them are good requests. And then some of them come from countries that are potentially less good actors. And some of those might be good requests and some of those might not be good requests. And it's like, how do you determine all that? It's a really, really complex and, and, and nearly impossible problem. And I think, you know, I, I think what we're, we are, discovering not discovering we know but what we're we're outlining here is just how incredibly complicated all of this is and that there you know there remain no easy answers which doesn't mean like throw up your hands and do nothing which i think some people <laughs> yeah. have accused me of of suggesting but just recognizing that 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 these are very very complex situations and whatever your easy solution is 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 probably probably missing some of the complexity yeah I mean, it's honestly why I've been so bullish on the DSA. It's not because Uh I think, you know, the EU is perfect or the DSA is perfect. But, you know, I think people miss because we're so used to our own experience, our own context. The Internet's systemic, right? Like, you don't there's no such thing as like a single country getting to make a rule and then it just stands like that's because (laughs) of the fact that these companies are then fielding. 50 different versions of requests that they have to parse not only the legal requirements placed upon them by those jurisdictions, but also those political judgments as to whether it's valid under a value statement that they have and understanding how they want to show up in the world. And that's a lot, right? Like that you'd expect a like government sized political office to staff that, which brings me back to the question of inevitability to me is actually when I wish I could flip on its head. Because I find often we end up having these conversations like, no, it's going to be terrible and there's nothing you can do about it. Instead of it being like, there's a lot of things we could do about it. And some of it might include needing democratically inclined, well-informed, deliberative and imperfect regulations that more people coalesce around. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, you know, right now, so like today is, this week is AI week, right? We had, I don't know when this is going to air, so I apologize for the temporal reference, but uh, an EO being released from, from the U.S. government and White House today, you have the U.K. hosting this giant summit uh, on, on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. And I'm struck that in conversations I've been privy to with some of the companies that are actively trying to figure out how do we show up in the context of the 2024 election? What are the policies that we want to set? How do we contemplate keeping these spaces from becoming nightmares? Number one, I want them to go back and read the report that Mike, you helped contribute to that we published in June (laughs) because it was for them. But number two, I feel like there was this moment in time where we could say things like, hey, if you're not ready to operate in a certain market responsibly, maybe don't operate in that market until you're able to be there responsibly. Have the language capacity, the context, the ability to navigate these legal questions and dynamics. This isn't just a question of whether you can like ship code. And we stopped saying that not because to, not to mention shipping there. staff there. Yes. Not to mention shipping <laughs> staff there, given the fact that countries can use uh, locally based staff as leverage uh, for companies Absolutely. to take or not take action. Yep. Landing yep. laws and the it, like. But so what yeah. 
it's it but here's the here's the crazy part we get to do that right now so on on the ai conversation i'm not going to name who i was talking to about this but i know that there are some companies that are actively debating whether they want to have a quote unquote elections policy versus say we're not doing that on our platform do not come here for information on where to vote do not come here for electioneering like this is we're not ready and right. and it it is wild to me that in those discussions how much of it is reminding people that they could make that choice because we we got so far down the line of this concept of inevitability like that all technology needs to be everywhere and there's nothing you can do about it and i like that i just really want people to hold agency in this moment if you're sitting in a company you have agency if you are a, a, a member of our society you have agency certainly mike andy we we have agency with these platforms and the work that we choose to do but i don't think we will be well served by giving into the sense of inevitability for this next round and we certainly have lessons to build on um and the last you know thing on my little soapbox i'll say to andy's point on the landing laws it's a perfect example of why our lawmaking and our rulemaking and the regulations have to be referential. Russia was one of the first countries to roll out a landing law for mm-hmm. the express purpose mm-hmm. of Putin being able to go threaten the lives of people yep. at Apple and Google when they had an app on the app store that Navalny put out that they didn't like. Yep. And it worked. No one said anything. Do you know that not a single government made a public statement about that when Russia did that? Mm-hmm. And all of those companies had to end up complying because they were out on a limb. And not that much longer after that is when India actioned its version of a landing law, threatening yeah. legal action against Twitter's employees, different than threatening violence, but still same concept. The EU actually had a version of a landing law in its original version of the DSA. Yes, and global right. civil society advocated very vigorously to get it out for that very reason. And so I, like, the goal isn't to overwhelm people by saying like everything everywhere all at once. But it is to say, maybe walk in with a little humility. Nothing is, is settled. Uh, we do have options. And if we're going to learn anything from the current conflict, it's that this matters. And we don't get to just sit back and not pay attention because it'll blow up in our face. Now I'm going to step back from my soapbox. <laughs> no, I think, th- I think that was great. Uh, and I will note that like we do have examples of like the landing laws question in the game as well. So, <laughs> so bringing it back around, uh, if, if people want to have to struggle with that decision about how do you handle country demanding that you have employees who can be bullied, jailed, or whatever <laughs> that is in the game, uh, I, I, I feel well like... Done vindicated that the research and interviews that we did with everybody worked out well. Um, but, um, you know, I think, I think we can, we can wrap up this podcast. Uh, the, the, the soapbox, uh, uh, speech at the end is sort of the, the a good, a good landing place to point. End it. Yeah. Um, but, but Rose having thoughts. <laughs> no, it's great. It's wonderful. Um, but again, like I, I think, you know, what, we've discussed today, you know, it, it really does demonstrate like why we, we help what, you know, put together this game in the first place and why we were so excited to work, you know, with the Atlantic council and the task force and everything was that these are, are really, really complex problems, but there are things that can be done. And the only way that people are going to do things that actually have a positive impact as opposed to just a, you know, random impact is is if if we have a better understanding of the complexity of these of these situations and and how you know that that there are 
you know, so many different variables at play and so many different things and where people have agency and what the impact of the decisions that they make will be are really, really important to understand. And if you don't have experience with this stuff, you know, actually digging in, you know, the game is a, is a, uh, a, a riskless, mostly riskless way of, <laughs> of getting some firsthand experience with this stuff. And so that's, that's why I think it, it was important. I'm really happy that we were able to get it out. I'm happy that we were able to do it with you guys. Um, and that I hope that this conversation sort of helps to demonstrate as well, like why, why the game is useful. You know, it's not, it's, the game is not going to solve the Middle East. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... You know, fine, fine, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> that's the next game. We'll we'll work on it. But but hopefully it gives people a little bit of of you know empathy and humility and understanding of the different issues that are at play here. And 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 with that understanding, you know, maybe we can get closer towards towards better, more thoughtful solutions. So that's my soapbox. It's <laughs> a good one. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I will get off it and uh, end this podcast. But uh, Rose and Andy, thanks so much for for all the work that you guys are doing constantly. Thanks. We'll have links uh, in the show notes as well to to your work. Um, and thanks for taking the time and coming on the podcast. Likewise, thank you so much, Mike yeah. and Andy, My pleasure. and and our whole team. Uh, just to say, you know, you heard the two of us. Um, but number one, the task force was a collection of a lot of people, both in and outside of the Atlantic Council, that we couldn't have done it without, and Kat Duffy's leadership as the director. Uh, and Andy sits uh, in a leadership helm over a team of how many people now around the world? About two dozen researchers and editors. And they are every day doing really important and painful work, frankly, particularly in the middle of this. So a huge thank you to them so that we even know what we're talking about here. And thanks, Mike, for, for giving us the chance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening as well. And uh, we'll be back next week. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.